You are listening to sermon audio from College Creek Church in Annapolis, Maryland. For more information on this local body of believers, visit us online at collegecreekchurch.org or in person every Sunday at 11 a.m. Baltimore native Joni Erickson Tata has become an, an inspiration. For, for many people, she's a world-renowned disabilities advocate. She's been invited to meet with presidents, with world leaders. She's spoken to crowds in the, in the tens of thousands. But in 1967, she was just another carefree 17-year-old who, in the likeness of her Olympian father and namesake, lived an incredibly active life. And she loved horseback riding and and hiking and tennis and definitely swimming. Maybe more than anything, swimming. But it is that love that actually would lead her to that fateful day on the Chesapeake Bay. On that day, July 30th, 1967, she misjudged the depth of the water and dove into the bay and hit the bottom and paralyzed herself from the neck down. And as one can imagine, that turn of events sent her into a great depression and and discouragement and in in her despair to the brink of suicide. And she's spoken of that time in her life in this way. She says, I was sick and tired of pious platitudes that well-meaning friends often gave me, trivializing my plight, tired of advice, and I didn't want any more counsel. I was numb emotionally, desperately alone, and so very, very frightened. She began to ask, if if God is supposed to be all loving and all powerful, then how is what has happened to me a demonstration of his love and of his power? Because if he's all powerful, then surely he was powerful enough to stop my accident from happening. And if he's all loving, then how in the world can permanent lifelong paralysis be a part of his loving plan for my life? I just don't see how this all-loving and all-powerful God is worthy of my trust. Maybe you've thought similar things at times in your life. Perhaps, perhaps not in the face of paralysis, right? But we can enter into despair for any number of reasons. I, I remember in my own life when I was 22, I almost took my life. Because for for a variety of reasons, I had come to a place where I believed that there was no way forward. And I was so afraid of, of rejection that I thought it better to just take my own life than to endure the pain of watching people I love walk away from me. I was talking to a friend just this week who told me that when they think back on their life, there was one night one night where they made a terrible decision that sent them into a years-long struggle with sin and shame, and it was because on that night, for whatever reason, all of their friends couldn't or wouldn't hang out with them, and an overwhelming sense of loneliness set in and took hold of their heart. So what, what does Jesus offer when we're lonely? or rejected, or scared, or even paralyzed. 
What does Jesus have for us when we're, when we're abused and, and ridiculed or even facing death itself? Well, perhaps Johnny can help us with this. Ten years after that fateful day, this is what she wrote. I discovered that the Lord Jesus Christ could indeed empathize with my situation. On the cross for those agonizing, horrible hours waiting for death, he was immobilized, helpless, paralyzed. Jesus did know what it was like to not be able to move, to not be able to scratch your nose, shift your weight, wipe your eyes. He was paralyzed on the cross. So she said, Christ knew exactly how I felt. What we see, at least in part, when we come to the story of the crucifixion is that Jesus can indeed, as Hebrews 4 tells us, sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And we all come into this place today with, with fears and with the compounding fear of facing our fears alone. But whatever they are, Jesus has faced them already. And he stands with you in them. Listen, if you're afraid of your friends abandoning you, well, just remember that in the chapter before the one that we're going to read here in just a moment, Jesus's best friend, Peter, denied even knowing him three times. If you're afraid that you'll be forsaken, just remember that the other gospels tells us that Jesus cries out from the cross that even his father had forsaken him. And as we read this passage that we're going to look at this morning, we'll see the list just expanding. Truly, whatever you're afraid of, Jesus can sympathize. And even even more than that, he can show you how to live even in the hardest of situations. And most of all, he has won the victory over it. And he grants you that victory too. But before I preach this whole sermon without reading the text, we're going to be in John 19 this morning. I want to read for us verses 1 to 30 of John 19. If you have your own Bible, you can follow along. If you picked up one of these Bibles on your way in, you'll find it on page 1003. And we want to remind you that those Bibles are there for you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, please take one of those with you. It's our gift to you. Well, let me read John 19, 1 to 30. It says this. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and then struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? 
Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement in, in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to a place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. And so the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I'm the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it will be. This was to fulfill the scriptures, which said, they divided my garments among them and, they, and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We're told at the very beginning of John's gospel, a passage that we looked at together months ago, that though Jesus, the son of God, made the world, the world did not recognize him. We're told that he came unto his own people and his own people did not receive him. We're told that he, the eternal son of God, the eternal word of God, took on flesh and dwelt among us and showed us the glory of God. But at the same time that he was showing us the glory of God, he was experiencing our suffering. He was sympathizing with us in our weaknesses. 
Pastor Eric Raymond says it this way. He says, there is nothing that anyone has gone through or currently going through or will go through that Jesus cannot relate to, sympathize with, or encourage them in. Jesus is so gloriously and marvelously sufficient. He then encourages us to consider the situations and the sufferings of Christ. So just think about it and think about your life. Think about the times in your life when perhaps you've said or thought, no one could possibly understand me. And then remember, remember that Jesus was born into poverty, that his family became refugees when he was a toddler, that he lost his dad when he was young, that as an adult, he was, he was homeless His own family thought he was a crazy person. His best friends turned their back on him, and one of those who was closest to him literally sold him out. He was tempted and tried in every way. He was repeatedly attacked for the things that he believed and the things that he taught, the things that he said. One way to say it um, might be to simply just remind ourselves that he was truly and fully human. And he experienced all of the suffering and hardship that we go through. And what's what's amazing to me is that he did it voluntarily. He stepped down from glory to experience that. He left the comfort and the glory and the power of heaven and became uncomfortable and ridiculed and dependent. Also that I would never have to feel alone when I experienced those same realities. And so that I would know how to live in the midst of those realities and so that I might have hope in the midst of the brutality of this world. And so let's consider our passage here. The first thing we're told is that Jesus was meaninglessly beaten. What it literally says is that Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And what I mean by meaningless is that Pilate doesn't even think Jesus is guilty of anything. He's just trying to to mollify a bloodthirsty crowd with a beating. This is a beating for sport. In in an attempt to just get people to leave him alone, Pilate decided, I'll just beat him. And so Pilate had him beaten. Commentator Kenneth Gangle points out that while cruelty has always been a major hallmark of sin in the world, the Romans had honed it to an art. And we see that here in the text, and much more will come later in in the story and seen in the other gospels as well. There, There are people, there are people, some of you here today who are thinking about moments and times of of abuse in your life. Abuse maybe presently, maybe in your past. And 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 I want to be sure that you know this. Listen, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine the pain and the loneliness that abuse must make you feel, but Jesus can. And he doesn't have to imagine it because he too has been abused for no reason. He too has had a person's personal power trip result in him having bruises and cuts all over his body. But not only was he physically beaten, Jesus can sympathize with us in the mockery and the ridicule that we receive as well. Consider verses two and three. 
It says that the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him and they said, hail king of the Jews, and then struck him with their hands. And certainly there's there's a physical quality to this abuse, but mostly this is emotional. This is mockery of his kingship, a fake crown and robe, phony worship. They're all meant to make Jesus feel small and insignificant. And and, and how many emotional wounds do we still walk around with from things very much like this in our own history? Listen, Jesus knows what it is like to be mocked. Jesus knows what it's like to endure a miscarriage of justice. While all of this is happening, Pilate still believes there's no guilt in Jesus. He says it clearly in verses four and then again in six, and his opinion on the matter never seems to change, but his willingness to put him to death does. Now, of course, we live in in a time where it seems like the miscarriage of justice is something we hear about almost weekly, which means it's happening far more often than that. And we might be tempted to think that this is just a modern American issue. But here's the thing. Jesus knows what it's like to be falsely accused. He knows what it's like to face a sham of a trial and to be killed before for a crime that he never committed and for a crime that he's never been able to defend himself from. And so for those who are reeling from a system of justice that seems pitted against you and your family, let me just tell you, Jesus can sympathize with you. And as the passage continues, so does the magnitude of Jesus's torment. In the next few verses, we see that Jesus is totally rejected. I told you about fear of rejection in my own life that drove me to the, to the end of myself. And it's verses like this that actually helped me to know that Jesus knew what I was experiencing. Jesus knew what it felt like to be rejected. And, and in fact, he was rejected so that I would be accepted. Jesus won my acceptance through his own rejection. So just consider the, the really the double rejection that Jesus must have felt when the chief priest said what they did in verse 15. Listen to this. They cry out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Right? Not only were they rejecting Jesus as their king, But in their effort to do so, they were also rejecting Yahweh as their God and King. And so the thing is that Jesus, it's one thing for them to say, oh, we don't actually think that Jesus is the Messiah. We're rejecting him as a blasphemer because he's not the Messiah. But what they say in effect here is that we've rejected God as well. We no longer serve God as our King. Our King is Caesar. And Jesus, of course, both is King and is God rejected on both sides. Accusing Jesus of blaspheming, they begin to blaspheme themselves. They don't just beat him and mock him and reject him, but in typical Roman fashion, now Jesus is subjected to public humiliation. I mean, this whole ordeal has been fairly public, but now they take it to the next level. It was normal practice in in the Roman Empire that when someone was being crucified, what they would do is they would parade them through the streets on the way to their death. 
because in that way, everyone was able to see the one who was condemned. And in verse 17, that's what happens to Jesus as well. And then to make matters even worse, we're told that where he was crucified was very close to the city so that people were walking by all day long. And here's what the soldiers did in verse 23. They took his garments and they divided them up into four parts, one for each soldier and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it will be. The public humiliation continues as he hangs on the cross, not only beaten, but now fully exposed a spectacle. Scripture says of this occasion that all who see him sneer at him and wag their heads. Perhaps you too have been humiliated publicly. Perhaps there are places that you would just rather not ever show your face again. Maybe people who you just soon never see again. And while all of that can surely feel like a lonely place, you're not actually alone because Jesus can sympathize. And of course, Jesus can sympathize when you face death as well because he knows the agony of not knowing which moment, but knowing that the moment is soon. That might be the last. And, and I might add that God the Father also can sympathize because he knows the experience of losing a child to death. I remember a, a woman sharing with me one time how she had lost her child and in pain and in agony, she was just screaming at God. And in the midst of her agony, she realized that God too knew the pain of watching his child die. And in that, in some strange way, she found comfort. And it's strange, the comfort that we find in knowing that God can sympathize with us. It's, it's strange, right? Because it in no way negates the reality of our situation. We're still there. But there's something powerful about knowing that we're not alone and that the one who is there with us in the midst of our pain is the very one that we need. He doesn't just sympathize with us, but he's our example in the midst of it, right? We might ask, well, how do you live? In the midst of things like this, well, Jesus shows us. He models it for us. Jesus' example is both simple and profound because he models a life lived in dependence on God and full of love for others. In the midst of his suffering, Jesus was dependent on God. We might say that he was pointing people to God. Listen to verses 9 to 11 again. Pilate enters his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you, authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. You know, it is sad to watch Pilate in this entire chapter because he's so desperate to be somebody. He's so desperate to be somebody powerful and yet so repeatedly shown to be weak. 
The Jewish leaders know that he's weak, so weak that they can manipulate him into doing exactly what they wish. And then when Pilate tries to to play the power game with Jesus, once again, he's shot down. Right, But Jesus doesn't shoot down Pilate's authority per se, but rather he is highlighting the supreme power of God. Commentator Bruce Milne puts it this way, Pilate is supremely aware of wielding the authority of the most powerful man on earth, Tiberius Caesar in Rome, but Jesus is conscious of an authority infinitely greater infinitely greater than any wielded by Pilate or Caesar or Caiaphas or the Jewish mob, an authority in whose hands all of these human forces are but reeds in the wind. And so in the midst of what seems to be incredible weakness on the part of Jesus, he actually displays an incredible strength that's rooted in his trust in the highest power of all. Jesus is our example, no matter what comes our way. And his example is this, look to God, trust in God, find strength in God, and then point others to God. When you struggle and hurt, when many people rise up against you, when it seems overwhelming, remember this, all authority belongs to God. And one day, all authorities will bow before God. Right, so the example of Jesus is one of trusting in God, but also loving others. Look what he does from the cross in verses 25 to 27. We're told that standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Jesus looked out from the cross and instead of thinking of himself, he was thinking of others. He was about to die. And while that would have been the concern in my mind, in the mind of Jesus, it was far more important to ensure that those who he loved were taken care of. So he looks at his widowed mother and ensures that she's going to be taken care of when he's gone. But really, that's just, that's just a small window into the love of Jesus that was shown on the cross, right? Truly, truly, his going to the cross in the first place was all about his love for others. Just a few chapters earlier, a few hours earlier, Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that somebody lay down his life for his friends. In other words, Jesus tells them what the greatest love is, and then he showed them that greatest love. Jesus's death on the cross was an act of total love for others. As Romans 5, 8 tells us God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were the enemies of God, Christ died for us. The death of Christ is the demonstration of the love of God. Here's the thing, Jesus 
didn't just come to earth to sympathize with us in our weakness. And he didn't just come to give us an example of how to live in our weaknesses. He came to give us victory over our weaknesses. He came to set us free from our weaknesses. On the cross, he took the weakness of the world on himself and he defeated it for us. And so now, any who trust in him no longer are held captive to their weakness. We're no longer held captive to our sin, right? Christ was rejected so that all who trust in him would be eternally accepted. He was mocked and ridiculed so that we might be exalted. He was killed so that we might live. He experienced loneliness so that his people would never have to be alone. We celebrate the cross of Christ, not for the cross, but for Christ, because he took an instrument of torture and he turned it into a symbol of hope. But hear me, there, there are a lot of things that we might look to the cross for, but most of all, we should look to it for our salvation. Jesus died a death that we deserved, not just to sympathize with us in it, but to give us victory over it. And so today you can, you can step into that victory by trusting in Jesus as your savior. Listen, the call of Christ is simple but profound. He says, very simply, just repent and believe and you'll be saved. Repent and believe and you'll be saved. And if you don't know exactly what that means, but you think maybe you want it, well, come talk to me as soon as the service is over. And for all who repent and believe in Jesus, here's what God has done. According to Colossians, he canceled the debt that we owed. He did away with its legal demands against us because he nailed them to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities of this world and triumphed over them. And so Romans 8 tells us that in Christ, we are more than conquerors, right? Because according to 1 Corinthians, we have been given victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. So when Jesus cries out from the cross, it is finished. He meant it. It's finished. He's not finished. It is finished. Weakness is finished. The enemy is finished. When you read the other gospels, none of them say it is finished. Here's what they say. They say that Jesus, right before he died, he yells out with a loud voice and then he dies. What did he say in that loud voice? John tells us, he said, it is finished. He didn't just moan that at the last second before he died. With victory, he declared, it is finished. Because the victory belongs to Jesus. I'm not sure all of the things that you are going through today, and I, and I certainly don't want to tell you that I understand, but I'll tell you this, I know somebody who does. Jesus sees you and he knows you and he loves you. He can sympathize with you in your weakness. He can be an example for you, but more than that, he has victory to share with you if you'll trust in him. Let's pray. Hmm. 
Lord Jesus, the victory is yours. And so we declare, we declare that you are the only one in whom we trust. Lord, we look to the cross and in what seems to be weakness, we see strength. In what seems to be defeat, we see victory. And we are overwhelmed with the reality that you would willingly share that victory with us. And so we pray that today, if there's any, any who don't know you, any who don't know the victory that you offer, the freedom that you offer, Lord, that today, that today they would step from death into life and find victory in you. It's in your name we pray, amen.